This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm really excited to be here to help celebrate the future of anthropogeny and to tell you a bit about the research that we're doing in my lab, which focuses on African genomic analyses and how they can shed light on human evolutionary history. So I want to start by talking about some of the key challenges in human evolutionary genomics research. The first is that we need to do a much better job characterizing both genetic and phenotypic variation in ethnically diverse populations from across the globe. We want to better understand the evolutionary processes that generate and maintain that variation and to understand when and where did modern humans originate in Africa? What is their demographic history? And how did modern humans adapt to changes in environment and diet during human evolution? The focus of my research is on Africa, and there are a number of reasons for that, one of which is the fact that all modern humans originated in Africa. These red dots represent the locations of fossils of anatomically modern humans, the oldest of which is dated to about 300,000 years ago. Following this origin in Africa, somewhere around 50 to 80,000 years ago, relatively small numbers of people migrated out of Africa, giving rise to populations across the globe. We now know that when they left Africa, they ran into archaic populations, such as Neanderthals and Denisovans, with whom they interbred to some small extent, such that somewhere between about 1% to 6% of the genomes of non-Africans derived from those archaic populations. So you can imagine that this demographic history has really shaped the pattern of diversity that we see today with more levels of diversity in Africa and a subset of that diversity outside of Africa. So how much do we differ at the genomic level? Well, if we were to compare the genomes of identical twins, in theory, there should be no differences. If we compare the genomes of two unrelated humans, we should differ at about one out of a thousand nucleotide sites. Human versus chimp, one out of a hundred. Human versus mouse, one out of 30. And a human versus broccoli, two out of three. So Given that there are about 3 billion DNA bases in the genome, that means we anticipate seeing about 3 million differences between each pair of, of genomes at the nucleotide level. So I call this my um, image of uh, Estee Lauder's version of ethnic diversity amongst beautiful people, but even amongst the rest of us, there's really very little variation at the genome scale, so less than 0.1% divergence. But that doesn't mean that there's, there are no differences. So as uh, you're hearing from Evan Eichler, there can be a considerable amount of structural variation between genomes. So insertions and deletions and gene duplications and inversions, and that could actually result in millions of base pairs of differences between genomes. But what we absolutely know, we've known this for over 50 years, is that the majority of genetic variation is within populations relative to between populations. So I want to tell you a bit now about African cultural diversity. There are over 2,000 ethnic groups in Africa speaking languages that have been classified into four major language families. In blue is the distribution of populations that speak Afroasiatic languages, mainly in Northern and Eastern Africa. 
In red is the distribution of populations that speak Nilo-Saharan languages. They uh, often practice pastoralism and, um, and daring practices. The most widespread language family is Niger-Kordofanian, also known as Niger-Congo. And the Niger-Congo languages originated in Western Africa. The largest subfamily are the Bantu languages, which originated along the border of Nigeria and Cameroon. And these individuals had uh, developed something called slash and burn agriculture. They had iron tool technology. They could cut down the trees in the uh, rainforest. They could grow crops that could sustain very large population sizes. So they were very successful and they migrated uh, to the east and to the south of Africa, to the west and to the south and really shaped the genetic landscape in Africa. And then in green, we could see uh, the distribution of populations that speak with cliques. These have been labeled as Khoisan. And these include the San populations from Southern Africa, as well as two populations in Tanzania, the Hadza and the Sandawe. And all of these populations either continue or until recently have practiced hunting and gathering. So unfortunately, there has been a major bias towards non-African populations in human genetics research, really with a major emphasis on people of European ancestry. So to help alleviate that bias together with uh, African collaborators shown here, we've been doing field work in Africa for over 20 years. And I thought I'd show you a little bit of what that's like. We are mainly studying uh, populations that are practicing more traditional lifestyles. They tend to live in more remote areas requiring use of a four-wheel drive vehicle. We are really careful to do this research in an ethical manner. So that means not just getting IRB approval at the university, but going through very rigorous ethical review in each country. And then we spend a lot of time talking to the communities, translating into the local language, talking about the risks and the benefits of the study, if there are any, and having a lot of dialogue. And it's only after we obtain community consent and then individual consent that we proceed with the research. We also think it's really important to return results to participants. We think this is a way of benefit sharing and to avoid what's called helicopter genetics, flying in and flying out. Training and capacity building is also really important. I've had the honor of training a number of grad students and postdocs in my lab uh, who are from Africa and hopefully are going to help be, build resources in Africa for the next generation. So typically we obtain blood from individuals and from the blood you can obtain DNA and RNA and plasma if you're able to bring liquid nitrogen. And then we are also able to get very detailed ethnographic information and information about diet and any information about health records that they may have. And then we have to process these samples in regions where there is little to no electricity. And so as seen in the lower left panel, we are able to bring a generator with us and actually set up the lab anywhere in the bush. And then we're measuring phenotypic diversity, um, measuring traits that we could do in a very rural setting. So these include very detailed anthropometric traits like height and weight and uh, grip strength and skin pigmentation. We're looking at cardiovascular lung and blood phenotypes, including blood pressure, uh, hemoglobin, for example, and metabolic functions such as lactose tolerance and glucose tolerance, and infectious disease status when we can.
So I want to tell you now about a study that we've recently completed that was led by a former postdoc in my lab, Xiaowa Fan, in which we generated high coverage whole genome sequence data from 180 Africans. At the bottom here, I'm showing what's called a uh, admixture plot, where we look at uh, genomic variation in a large number of ethnically diverse Africans. And we can use computational approaches to infer genetic ancestry, and that's indicated by the different colors. And then each line represents an individual, and the individual can have mixed ancestry from these different populations. But the, all the colors show you how much diversity there is in Africa. And the red arrows indicate the populations that are included in the study, and we could see that they represent the most genetic variation in Africa. So we identified over 33 million single nucleotide polymorphisms. Around 17% of these are novel. Many of these are predicted to be functional, as shown over here. And of those, many are predicted to be in regulatory regions, and some are predicted to be in coding regions and to alter protein structure and function. We can also construct a phylogenetic tree from the genome sequence data to look at how individuals are related to each other based on genomic variation. We can see that the most basal lineages are those that are found in the two click-speaking San populations from Southern Africa, followed by the rainforest hunter-gatherers who live in Central Africa, and then the Bantu-speaking populations that originated in Central and Western Africa, and then the Hadza and Sandawi hunter-gatherers who also speak with clicks, who are located in East Africa, and then we see a number of East African populations from Ethiopia and also the Fulani who were thought to have originated in either Northern or Eastern Africa uh, in the past and then migrated across Central and Western Africa. And then we have the non-African populations and you can see that they have a subset of the diversity present in Africa consistent with an African origin of all modern humans. We can also look at the level of genomic variation by comparing genome sequences to the reference genome, we could see that the populations that have the highest levels of variation are the two click-speaking San populations from Southern Africa, followed by the Central African rainforest hunter-gatherers, the Baca. And then we see that the lowest variation uh, is in the Amhara population from Ethiopia, which isn't too surprising since they have a lot of non-African gene flow and admixture. If we were to put non-Africans on here, they'd be a little bit below the Amhara, right around 3 million, which is what we predicted is the number of variants that we would see. We can also use computational approaches to make inferences about changes in the effect of population size going backwards in time. Using an approach called PSMC, we, which is most informative for looking at more deep time events, we could see that from around 50,000 years ago going backwards in time, that the San and the rainforest uh, hunter-gatherers had the largest effective population sizes, even though today they have relatively smaller census sizes. Using another approach called SMC++, that's more um, informative for looking at more recent time depths, we could see that some of these populations have undergone really dramatic population bottlenecks, including the Hadza and the Shabu, who are hunter-gatherer populations from Tanzania and southwestern Ethiopia, respectively, who today have a census size of, size of only around 1,000. So we use a number of different computational approaches 
to make inferences about the demographic history of these African populations. This is a somewhat simplified picture, but I want to point out that the model that uh, is a best fit for our data is one in which the San populations from Southern Africa and the Central African rainforest hunter-gatherers form a sister clade. They had a common, they descend from a common ancestral population around 80,000 years ago. And that ancestral population then gave rise to all other modern populations. And I want to note that this is different than what has typically been proposed, which is that the San population derived from a population ancestral to all others. And we could see what we call ghost populations. These are populations that we don't know their identity, but we put them in the model and the model is a much better fit when we include them. And those ghost populations diverged over a million years ago. And then there appears to have been some intergression with modern humans, very similar to what happened with Neanderthals and Denisovans outside of Africa. It's just that we don't know who this population was because we don't have good ancient DNA from that region of the world. You could see that most of the populations in Africa diverged um, tens of thousands of years ago. There's been very deep population substructure. And these blue lines represent migration events. So there's been a lot of recent migration like that Bantu expansion I mentioned. Also some ancient migrations, such as between the ancestors of the Hadza and Sandawi click speakers with the San click speakers, perhaps uh, indicating why there are some similarities in their languages. So now I wanna tell you about how populations have adapted to diverse environments. Here are some examples. For example, this cow symbol indicates uh, lactose tolerance, which evolved in populations that practice dairying, and it evolved independently in African pastoralists and European pastoralists. I wanna tell you how we can determine local, how we can distinguish local adaptation. So one approach is to look, use that whole genome sequence data where we have um, 15 individuals per population and use um, an estimate called FST, which measures the amount of allele frequency differentiation between populations. And we do this for every variant in the genome. Let's say we wanna focus on a group like the Baca, Central African hunter-gatherers, and we wanna compare them to an agriculturalist population and a pastoralist population. We want to identify all the variants that are either private or very different allele frequency in that population, whereas the other populations are similar to each other. So we're finding variants that are uniquely different in that population. Now, you'll find thousands of variants, and then you can ask the question, what are the genes nearby and what are those genes doing? So when we do that, we find a number of examples of local adaptation in Africa, and I'm just going to highlight a few examples of my talk today. The first is uh, with the Baca rainforest hunter-gatherers who have a short stature trait, which is thought to be adaptive to a tropical environment. Here we can see enrichment for genes that play a role in bone development and chondrocyte differentiation, which are likely to be adaptive in that population. Now, if we look at a different uh, hunter-gatherer group, the Hadza, who live in Eastern Africa, and they have a very different environment. It's much more dry and arid. Here we see a striking enrichment for genes that play a role in heart muscle development. So again, likely to be an adaptive trait in these populations that are going very long distances and very arid conditions. So lastly, I wanna tell you about a study that was just recently published in Molecular Biology and Evolution. This is work that um, has been done by a postdoc in my lab, Mike McQuillan. 
And what he did is he used a data set consisting of SNP genotyping millions of variants in over a thousand Africans from many diverse regions in Africa. So we applied two different methods for looking at signatures of natural selection. One is the method I just told you about uh, to look for local adaptation. And the other method is something called an IHS statistic, which looks for regions of extended haplotype homozygosity. So imagine there's a region of the genome, there's background genetic variation, a new mutation arises, and that mutation is adaptive. It increases the fitness of the individual so that they have more children and their children have more children and so on. That variant is going to rapidly rise in frequency in the population and drag with it the neighboring variation so that people who are homozygous for that variant are homozygous for the neighboring regions. We call that a selective sweep. So we applied both of those approaches for looking at natural selection. We took the top 1% of regions in the whole genome. We did gene annotation enrichment analysis and looked at what biological functions or pathways are under selection. And something that really stood out to us is that in all of the populations from Ethiopia that spoke an Afroasiatic language, there was an enrichment for this pathway alcohol dehydrogenase activity. And that was one of the most um, enriched pathways. And that was really striking to us. So let me tell you now more about the alcohol dehydrogenase genes. Uh, this gene family encodes enzymes that catalyze the metabolism of ethanol into the toxic intermediate acetaldehyde. Non-synonymous mutations in ADH genes, including a mutation called ADH1B48HIS. I'm going to refer to that as 48HIS uh, for brevity increase enzyme catalytic activity leading to buildup of acetaldehyde. And this mutation provides a protective benefit against alcoholism and is highly associated with alcohol drinking behavior in many genome-wide association studies. This variant is very common in Asia and has been shown to be a target of natural selection. And it was hypothesized that the, um, the selective pressure was the advent of rice agriculture and associated increase in fermented foods and beverages. But this hypothesis has never been tested in populations outside of Asia. So what could be the selective force acting on the ADH gene region in Ethiopians? Well, one thing we know is that Ethiopians have a lot of fermented foods and beverages, but we should also keep in mind that there are a number of metabolic pathways that are influenced by the ADH1B gene, including those that have to do with fatty acid metabolism, with serotonin degradation, and so on. So there could be other selective forces, but we wanted to test this hypothesis. So now if we look at that ADH gene region, we saw a really dramatic signature of selection using both of the uh, tests of, uh, for selection over hundreds of thousands of base pairs in the region. And this is a test that I'm showing here was done in agriculturalist populations who speak uh, Afroasiatic languages in Ethiopia. And this gene region includes the ADH1B gene, but also other genes like ADH7 and MTTP. Now, what's striking is when we do the same analysis in a population that has the same genetic ancestry but practices hunting and gathering called the Waito, we don't see a signature of selection. It seems to be specific to those populations that practice agriculture. 
So here we can see the signature of extended haplotype homozygosity in red is showing uh, individuals who are homozygous for the variant that appears to be a target of selection. And that homozygosity extends hundreds of thousands of base pairs away. And we see this not only for the 48-HIS variant at ADH1B, but also for some variants at ADH7 and MTTP. If we look on the right, we could see that all of these uh, variants are very common in East African populations, particularly in Ethiopia. And they are in, somewhat in linkage disequilibrium with each other. So it could be that there's a haplotype or haplotypes that combine different variants that are selectively advantageous. I'll just point out quickly that the ADH7 gene is involved in both ethanol and retinol oxidation. We find a non-synonymous mutation um, that appears to be a target of selection. The MTTP gene is involved in production of beta lipoproteins. And here again, we see a non-synonymous mutation that also appears to be a target of selection. So now we want to address the question about whether or not this mutation, the 48-HIS mutation, arose independently in Africans and East Asians. In the lower right, we're looking at a haplotype network. Each circle represents a haplotype, how different variants are arranged along a short region of a chromosome. And uh, the size of a circle indicates the number of people who have that haplotype. And in the uh, green variant shown to the left is the haplotype containing the 48-his allele in East Asians, and the one to the right is the one in uh, Ethiopians. So if we look above this larger network, again, we could see the East Asian variant on the left and the one in Ethiopians on the right. And it's very clear that they arose on different haplotype backgrounds. So that means that they arose due to convergent evolution. Now, that variant, the 48-HIS, is also present in some Middle Eastern populations like the Druze and at low frequency in Europeans. So we wanted to determine if it was introduced by migration from non-Africans into Africa. So we looked at local ancestry inference. So as we scan along the genome in this region flanking ADH, the regions in purple are those that are of sub-Saharan African ancestry, and the regions in yellow are those that are of non-African ancestry. And what we can see is that the region flanking the um, alleles under selection in the ADH region are strongly enriched for non-African ancestry. And we could see that that is actually an outlier if we compare to the rest of the genome. This is particularly strongly enriched for non-African ancestry. So we do believe that this was introduced by gene flow, and we can estimate the time of that uh, gene flow or that migration to be about 2,000 years ago. The other striking observation is that we see a dramatic difference in the allele frequency of that variant between populations that have similar genetic ancestries but different diets. So it's much more common, significantly more common in populations that practice agriculture compared to pastoralists or hunter-gatherer populations. So in conclusion, we've identified multiple putatively functional ADH variants and variants in nearby lipid metabolism genes that show strong signals of positive selection in Ethiopian populations practicing agriculture. These variants were likely introduced from a West Eurasian source within the last 2,000 to 3,000 years, and some experienced positive selection post-admixture. And these data support the hypothesis that agriculture has shaped the evolutionary history of the alcohol dehydrogenase gene region in ethnically diverse Africans, and that this arose due to convergent evolution. So 
Now I want to just lastly talk about what I think are some of the important future directions in the study of human evolutionary genetics. There's an urgent need to include ethnically diverse populations in human evolutionary genetics research. We need better reference genomes from more diverse populations. We need uh, more detailed measurements of phenotypic variation across diverse ethnic groups. We need to develop better computational approaches to be able to infer complex demographic histories and to identify targets of natural selection from very large genomic data sets. We need better ancient DNA data, particularly from samples that are greater than 20,000 years old from Af Africa and from other tropical regions. It's very difficult to get uh, ancient DNA. And most importantly, we need functional genomic approaches to identify functionally important genetic variants that are influencing adaptive traits, particularly those that are in non-coding regions and influence uh, gene expression. So I just wanna end by thanking the many people who contributed to these studies and to thank our funding organizations. And I'm very happy to address any questions that you may have. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.